Hello, this is Chris Alvarez. Welcome to this episode of Science Fiction and the Fantastic Inside Out. In today's episode, we talk about the production of museum-quality replicas from science fiction movies and from other interesting subjects. Thank you, and enjoy. All right, I'm here at the Great Philadelphia Comic-Con 2019 with Steve Dimso and Carl Tate um, of the Master Replica Group. So thank you both for talking to me. Um, First, tell me, what does the company do? What do you create? Well, we make licensed collectibles and a number of our own pieces. So we have a license with Warner Brothers for 2001 A Space Odyssey, and we have a license with the Smithsonian for replicas of aerospace and archaeological replica-type things, mm-hmm. fossils, dinosaurs, etc. Mm-hmm. And we're actually working on a couple new licenses that we'll be announcing very shortly. Okay. So how do you get into this sort of work doing replicas? How do I? Well, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a tough one. Well, first you need a license when you're doing something like 2001: Space Odyssey. So Steve here will approach Warner Brothers and say we have this thing we want to do, and they like it, of course, and we do it. Um, something like the aerospace products don't have a. Uh, licensing body, so we're free to do whatever we want in the case of the posters and the XO worlds, uh, the space terrains that are based on 3D satellite data. All this is public domain stuff. But when it comes to like the Smithsonian licensed fossils, now this okay, so this is a aerospace example of a uh, non licensed product. This was created from photogrammetry of actual Apollo photographs, and we just had 3D uh, graphics artists uh, sculpt back the details and presented as a sculpture. It's based on real science, but it's an artistic piece, and I think it came out very, very well. Oh, yeah. Me too. Cool. Uh, things like the exo-worlds, we have these floating globes that uh, are based on the idea that there's a real planet orbiting another star, but nobody knows what that planet looks like. We have artistic license to do what we want. But something like the skulls, the uh, Tyrannosaurus skull from the Smithsonian, that's actual 3D data that's um, you know perfectly accurate to what's in the museum. And it's every bit as accurate as, say, the uh, HAL 9000, which we spent years researching. Uh, I did uh, about 60 animated sequences of graphics for the Command Console product. So we uh, spent a lot of time and a lot of obsession uh, trying to get the details right. Uh, but we found that there's a synergy between fans of science fiction and fans of things like dinosaurs, right? The real science is the same passion and uh, level of excitement about it. So uh, that's why we have such a range of products. So so the broader question, how do you get into actually being replica creators? Well, there are a lot of people, there's a lot of people on, say, uh, these forums that are online, individuals who make unlicensed but very obsessively realized replicas of things. And I think Steve started out that way, uh, way back in the day, doing lightsabers, and ultimately did licensed lightsabers for Star Wars. <laughs> no, I didn't. What are you talking about? I didn't. You can cut this part. <laughs> They were based upon an idea of... They, they were licensed-challenged. Right. We like that term. Okay. Yes. So so how do you develop your, your the physical skills, sort of the artistic skills to do this work? Well, we have 16 different people in the company now, so anything that you're seeing at the table actually takes a broad range of skills. Mm-hmm. So Carl is our graphics guru. He writes the specifications, does the designs. I do a lot of the prototypes. So like for the HAL, I built that piece. Mm-hmm. 
I painted the Discovery, um, and then our guys, we have different people who are very talented at casting and painting. Mm -hmm. So it takes a really broad range of everything from people who can write the specs all the way to painting the the casting. Mm -hmm. So we do have a very talented crew who does all that. Are these often people who are self-taught, or are they uh, sort of professionals in their own right in, the, in what they're working on? Or? A lot of our guys actually have college degrees. Mm-hmm. So a couple of our guys have degrees in art mm-hmm. from their various colleges, universities. Um, James, for example, he had a degree in, in Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop, all those different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Carl, you went for... Well, I'm a graphic for, artist for about 30 years, actually. I had a long career in journalistic graphic arts. Mm-hmm. But I have an interest in these these science fiction topics, so uh, I do a lot of concept art and a lot of the you know nitpicky kind of research that goes into these things. Mm-hmm. So how long has the company been in existence? Well, the new company started in 2017. Okay. Master Replicas was originally founded by me in my dining room with a couple other people back in 1999. Okay. And we started around 2000, 2001, really gearing up. And then the company, unfortunately, went out of business around 2008. Okay. So I had left uh, December 31st, 2007. Um, I went back to my original company, ST Studios. But... Over all those years, a number of people came to me and said, like, hey, you should start the company back up. And two years ago, three years ago, somebody came to me and offered some funding for that. And I wrote a thing. It was 30 reasons why we should never start Master Replicas back again. Uh-huh. And I still have it on my computer. Uh-huh. And it was really compelling. Like, here's all the reasons why it's a terrible idea. And then as I was writing it, I was like, it's actually not that bad of an idea. <laughs> so we found a guy who uh, did quite a bit of funding for us. And uh, we've also... Our sales have been tremendous, so we've done really well. We're actually looking about moving into a new, bigger office space, and we have seven or eight new products coming out this year, so it's, it's expanded very, very rapidly since 2017. So what, uh, over time, what uh, changes in hardware and software technology have, have helped you do this work? Oh, wow. Well, 3D printing has really changed it a lot. Say, I mean, yeah, 3D printing. you look at our 3D skulls. I mean, the, some of these aerospace products, the Moon Boot, all of these start as 3D models. In the old days, they would have started as clay sculptures. Yeah. Uh, in the case of you know found props or props from Star Wars or whatever, you know you would source the original parts that the, the prop makers used. Mm-hmm. But today we can you know pretty much replicate anything in 3D. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I would say that was probably the biggest thing mm-hmm. from a production standpoint. So how big uh, 3D printers do you have? Do you, I guess do you print sections and build it together, or how does that work? Well, we subcontract because the, the cost of having a machine yourself at very high res is extremely expensive. I mean, really good machines start around hundred dollars to $250,000. So for right now, I mean, we've been looking at machines. We've had a number of people quote us pricing. But for right now, for the quantity of pieces that we do, it's actually cheaper to subcontract it because the uh, rapid prototyping machines are very maintenance uh, intensive. Okay. Once a year, you got to spend a lot of money to have them updated. So, uh, for instance, a company called Acme, who I'm very good friends with their owner, Clint. So he did this piece for us, and we got the buddy price on this. Okay. Um, but if you looked at the fossils, like, for example, the Smithsonian, the Trilobite, that's printed by a company... Old World Labs, and that's down to a half a micron. Okay. So literally, the resolution on that is so high, a micron's a millionth of a meter. Mm-hmm. So a half a millionth of a meter. There was literally no lines in that. We literally just molded it. Oh, wow. And and they do teeth, like literally have the gloss of the teeth in them. That's how high res 
this can be done now. But the machines are half a million, quarter million, million dollars. So it's a pretty big investment. And, and we need that kind of resolution for our stuff. So where does the really intense quality control come in? Do you have to make sure the design is perfect before you send it out to get printed? or Because once it's made, you can't really go back well, no, and actually, fix it too much? You or? can. We can. I mean, not only do we fix the 3D model, because the case of the T-Rex skull, it had to be reconstructed a little bit because of you know how it was done. Um, but, yeah, once you get that master pattern, that can be sculpted just like a regular sculpture so there's a little bit of tweaking that you can do to the, the 3d data mm-hmm. uh, although we try to keep it as authentic as possible yeah. yeah this went through several rounds of corrections he's been pretty much leading the charge on this one mm-hmm. so this is his baby and there's been a number of retexturing work on this and everything to get it to where it was now so. so with 3D models, printed uh, items, do you, is it more about do you change it by adding to it, or you can't really shave it down in you any way? Do you can do anything. You do, yeah. okay. It's a 3D model, so it can be recontoured, resurfaced, anything. Okay. And it's in the computer, so you don't have physical limitations. I mean, when it comes to be printed, there are suddenly physical limitations again. But in the computer, it's easier probably to manipulate than it is for a physical model. So... But once you have the physical one printed... Well, then you have manufacturing. Then you got to figure out how you're going to make this. Is it going to be injection molded? Is it going to be bolted together? Is it going to be cast in resin? And then suddenly you've got, oh, you can't have any undercuts. You can't... You know, there's a million little things then you have to worry about. But that's not until the production process. Okay. But in the, it's, to your point, like this particular piece, I keep coming back to this because we just got this this morning... Mm-hmm. Um, the CG file was done a certain way, and then he had asked for more texturing, but they had already output it. Right. So they put it extremely, extremely fine, if you feel it, almost like a talcum powder surface in there. That was actually added after the file was done, because Carl said, ah, we need a little more texturing here. Mm-hmm. So that was the combination of output, and then a sculptor went in and tweaked it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it came out really well. I might Yeah, we love this piece. Yeah. We're really excited about this. So... Can you or do you balance between the artistry of the the product? You may, I, if it's a replica, it has to be exact. But I, I feel like there might be a little bit of. of um, There's artistic re- impression in everything. Yeah, is that where you're going? Yeah. So, like for example, when we did the lightsabers back originally at Master Replicas, we go to the archive and we'd see a lightsaber. In some cases, the original prop was pretty rough. Okay. I mean rough. So we would have to make a determination like, are we going to make it exactly like that? Or are we going to clean it up to make it look the way people thought they saw it? And 90% of the time we did it the way people thought they saw it. Because our point was, you wouldn't want it. Like if you took that prop from the archive and looked at it up close, you'd be like, it looks great on camera. But then it's like all crooked and it's got weird parts on it. So that is a judgment call we do with every single piece um, the T-Rex is, was a good example where we did, like Carl said, we went and we cleaned it up a little bit more. We did some more texturing on the surface. Mm-hmm. Well, so. there's a little idealization, like uh, if you got a phaser from Star Trek, you want it to feel like a weapon, right? So you yeah. have the Master Replicas one in die-cast metal, even though the original was wood or, or fiberglass. resin, fiberglass, very lightweight. Yeah. But you wanted it to have heft. You wanted it to feel like a real weapon. Gun, yeah. Uh, now, the case of the like this T-Rex skull, there's only so much you can do because you got to be authentic. you got to stick to what's the scientific model. But 
things like reconstruction, right? Things about putting back things that should be there. Like if you look at the T-Rex skull from the front, it's wacky. You know, the nose is pointed off off axis and it's crushed on one side, but that's all there because that's what the real thing looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, so you don't you don't want to make it too idealized to where it's not true to itself anymore. Mm-hmm. And this one has a big snaggle tooth. Yeah. It's just kind of where it's sticking up, and he couldn't actually close his jaw all the way because of the one tooth. I was oh, looking wow. where it's like a shark. There's additional <laughs> teeth, additional teeth growing into the yeah. sockets where two teeth have fallen out. Mm. This guy is missing like ten teeth. Yeah. You look down in the sockets, and there are little points of little buds teeth. of the teeth popping yeah. back in like a shark. So it's and, really interesting. And that's from the quality of the scan we got from the yeah. Smithsonian. So that's that's you know people are going to want this thing. People are going to want to really study it. What uh, what machinery or what software and hardware do you, did they use for the scan do you know uh, we don't know what they the Smithsonian used because they basically just delivered the scan to us okay I mean we know what we use but in that case um, you just they uploaded it to a site and said here you go okay <laughs> and you just pulled it yeah so I'm not sure what they use for that so what <laughs> hardware and software do you use or if you don't mind sharing that I don't know if it's well, for some of our other scans, we have a company in California. It's kind of proprietary, so I don't know how much I can say about that. Okay. But it's a company we've been working with since way back at Master Replicas. And they do very, very high-resolution structure. It's called white light scanning. It's not really a laser scan, yeah. per se. Okay. So we use them. And then there's a couple other local companies. So it's a it's a combination of who's available at the time and the size of the project. Well, with something like this, I think it's fair to say we use uh, ZBrush mm-hmm. as a modeling tool, and that's what you know movie studios would use to create monsters and special effects. So it's, there's some commonality there, right? It's the same talents that are used. Um, so you know, I can't wait. I mean, we use SolidWorks for manufacturing, but that's fairly standard, I think, right. industry standard. Yeah, ZBrush is more for organic forms, so yeah. it worked well for this. Okay. So, what's your what's the favorite piece that that you've you've the company has done so far? So for far you for me, it's got to be Hal. Hal, because I've had the most uh, input into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's sort of a lifelong dream. I mean, uh, you know, I've been researching it since about twenty. 11 or so and we were lucky that since the 50th anniversary has gotten closer and closer more and more material has come up out of the archives Uh, a guy named Adam K. Johnson was very helpful to us in giving us the original blueprint that was used on the uh, the movie and the books like uh, Pierce Bisney's Making of 2001 has come out and that's you know full of uh, new material that we were able to draw on so uh, yeah the HAL command console is my favorite and what about you? Cal, for sure. Cal. For all the reasons he said. That <laughs> okay. yep. yeah. I thought you were going to say that T-Rex skull. I love the T-Rex skull, but Hal, I'm more of a tech guy, mm-hmm. so Hal's just perfect for me. Now, is there a um, is there a piece that that you'd love to get a contract for that, you know, that, you know, like, uh, what, what would you like to create? There's, there's a couple things that are in process now. Okay. I mean... Yeah, there's there's a couple other pieces that are Smithsonian related that we're we're trying to talk to them about. Okay. So and like I said, we have two new licenses pending, so we're not allowed to say anything yet. But yeah. a couple of those pieces, everybody are just going to say like, "Oh my God, that yes, of course. Why didn't we think of that? That's brilliant." Yeah. Well, I hope everybody says that. Yeah. Um, so we should be able to announce those in the next couple months. Okay. Um, what uh, what sort of inf- artistic influences um, have both of you enjoyed as far as Stimulating this interest, you know, say in sci-fi or fantasy or whatever. What are your your favorites? Well, I would say the artist artistry of the original 
production designers from the original films. I mean, you look at Ralph McQuarrie and you look at how he and Joe Johnston and, and all these early people in 1976-1975 visualized Star Wars before it was even made and then realized that in their artwork. Um, that's what inspires me, just the the uh, ability that they had in those days. And they still have today. I think everybody in the, certainly the effects industry, the prop uh, industry, uh, you look at the new stuff that's coming out, the Marvel movies, the new Star Trek materials, new Star Wars material, they're all very inspired by that hugely creative period, 60s through the 70s, even the 80s. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that's my answer. What, what about any books or uh, oh, music um, or anything <laughs> that you personally like? Oh, well, that's a big one. Um, I would say I love I love Art Of's books. Uh-huh. Uh, you're, I think you want me to say something like Da Vinci or something, but oh, I'm no, not no, sure. No. <laughs> but any, any fiction, any authors or, you know, oh, you have um, favorite sci-fi stuff? No, too many to really. No? I, I, too many, too many to really. Oh, uh, too many. Just say I wouldn't know okay. how to pin that down. So you do, you are a big fan then? It's a, it's I'm a fan of. Okay, so if you want to talk about Star Trek, okay. uh, you know the, the graphic artists who worked on the show, Mike Okuda, Rick mm. Sternback. You know Star Wars. I already mentioned Ralph McQuarrie. My my heroes tend to be the people who took the blank page, who yeah. took the script, typewritten script for this thing, and went, "Oh, I know how to draw this," and they did it. Yeah. You know, it's like that's always been inspirational to me. And I didn't end up in the in the movie industry, but that that's always kind of lit the fire for me. Okay. And, and how about you? Inspiration. Yeah, Seventy two. Doug Chang for Star Wars. I have his books, his art of stuff. Uh, Harry Lang, two thousand and one. Absolutely. All that like futuristic NASA space hardware stuff. I love that. Okay. Because I have a degree in engineering, so okay. I've always I used to do drafting and all that. So all that technical stuff always appealed to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love the old. Uh, you know, they have the U.S. Air Force art collections, and the NASA used to have the art. Yep. Art stuff. Yep. So yeah. And that's why we got into the blueprints because those those used to be available. You can't get them anymore, but we were able to get access to the original art files. So like that. You know, that six-foot-tall Saturn V over there, that's just crazy that somebody sits there. And that was all hand-drawing back in the 60s. Yeah. You know, kids today, these kids today with their computer stuff. But I remember sitting at a drafting table, you know, doing Leroy, you know, all the hand lettering and then doing typesetting and putting it in the thing and photographing it, pulling it out and gluing it on. I'm that old that I remember doing that stuff. Well, I did that in in uh, infographic design, you know, Zipatone and the Amberlin Yeah, Zipatone. It's a, we came from a similar we're from a similar age where the Apollo 11 moon landing was sort of fresh in the culture's mind and we realized how cool that was even though like a lot of people didn't I guess but just every every facet of that you know and to the extent that even people I was mentioning before Macquarie did artwork for CBS for their TV coverage of, of the Apollo program right so there are paintings in the Macquarie books of his like Saturn V stages and whatnot um, all that stuff as a kid I was very uh inspired by and uh, to this day we're gravitating towards that we've been talking about doing you know, an Apollo Saturn V model someday yeah. Um, so yeah that's that's been hugely influential do you feel like we're entering a new space age with you know SpaceX and commercialized launches or is it more do you feel like people's imaginations are going to get caught or is it more just a business is space becoming a business well, it's gotten really weird now because all our lives, 
landing on Mars is 30 years away. Yeah. And it's always been 30 years away. Yeah. And now we're being teased with, oh, maybe we could land on the moon in a few years. Maybe we could do this and maybe we can do that. And there's no impetus for it. Yeah. Nobody is threatening us with something if we don't do it. Right. So, in a way, yeah, I expect Elon Musk to be waving back at us from the moon someday you know, or something like that. But I, don't, I think it's kind of fallen out of the culture. The thing that... that really offends me are these we never landed on the moon people yeah. and it's cry, it's climbing yeah. up right 20 percent 25 percent of the people i can't believe that that blows my mind yeah. so we desperately need to do something that proves to these people <laughs> that it's yeah. real yeah. it's a thing it's just a matter of physics right but um that's the biggest disappointment you know growing up and, and getting to the age i am now is that everything kind of stopped in the 60s and yeah. So I hope I hope I'm wrong. I hope that uh, Elon Musk does want to land on the moon, and you know we have a lot of amazing stuff happening today with the Chinese landing on the far side only a few weeks ago, right? Yeah. And photographing uh, a black hole. Photographing a black hole. Oh, How cool is yeah. that? Um, so yeah, amazing stuff is being done, but you got to kind of go out of your way to like go, oh, that's interesting, you know. But people's imaginations are caught by that. I can you, know, you can go on Facebook and you can see that yeah, people are paying attention. Yeah. So maybe a younger generation, maybe the people who are you know in their twenties now are going like, why don't we do that? Why don't we ever do that? Land on the moon again. Um, so hopefully it'll happen. Any answer? Or is that he, he said it. Yeah. Sorry. Well, yeah. No, no, no. It's. Uh, it's funny, we talk about this all the time because you said that the people say we didn't land on the moon. As an engineer, I can tell you that, you know, getting that 363-foot stack off the ground was 98% of the effort. Yeah. So the people are like, we didn't land on the moon. It's like, well, once you have that, it's not that much harder to get to the moon. Yeah. Right. So why would they fake that a bunch of times? Yeah. And wouldn't, so. the, wouldn't the Russians have caught us on yeah. that? Wouldn't the Russians be right. like, hey, you didn't do that. They didn't actually do that. Yeah. And they blew up how many N ones? Three, three, five, three. Yeah. So three. they were trying. You know, they were trying. They, they denied it later. Oh, we never meant to. Yeah. But so there's, there's overwhelming evidence. You know, and when we go up there, we'll find the modules and the footprints, and they'll still not believe it. Oh, you planted that. Oh, it's in a studio somewhere. Yeah. So. I know it's frustrating. So what's uh, so in the stu- in the workspace? What is it a wide open workspace or are people in their cubicles like work? It's or? distributed. I mean, I'm in Brooklyn. He's okay. in. These guys are in Pennsylvania. Okay. Our Bob, our electronics uh, guru, is in California. So we got into this point where I don't think this would have been possible in the original master replicas. Maybe people mailed each other prototypes and stuff. But I think it's you know just even the moon boot thing. I've never met the guy who did the photogrammetry. I've never met the guy who did the 3D rhino sculpture or the rather zebra sculpture um we've had you know correspondence online but you know we've never sat down in the same room so uh it's 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 weird but it's the way things are done nowadays and um you know when you're physically pouring resin of course you have to be there for it Uh, but you know manufacturing is in china sometimes here now so you know again you just never meet the people okay so not that you guys are hiring, but let's say someone's listening and watching this, and they're like, "I'd love to work, do what they're doing." How does someone, how does someone get into this? What does it take? Just knowing the right people? Or? Yeah, I mean, we've we've hired a number of people local, and like Carl said, we have people in five different states, um, some of which have never met each other, which is funny. Um, one guy, James, he just my. One of our guys, our graphics guy, said, hey, I got this buddy. He's moving in from uh, Florida, 
uh, do you want him to come in for a couple days and help out? Like, sure. And six months later, he was still there. So we were like, yeah, we might as well hire him because yeah. uh, he turned out to be really, really talented. Yeah. Um, so it varies. I mean, we literally get resumes all the time oh, okay. from people. Yeah. And they're like, this would be my dream job. And it's like, well, we're not hiring right now for that position. But I do keep the resumes on file. Uh, so, so also they have no clue as to what's really like. Yeah, they the don't know what really is. goes on here. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. You don't want to work here, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> so the beatings will continue until morale increases. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have? So when you do get a new project, is it so the same group? Or you like you assign teams to it, or you're like, okay, we need someone with this skill. We don't have it, and then you know. Yeah, so we have we have every Monday a uh, conference call which lasts anywhere from three hours to five thousand hours, um, and we'll talk about like okay, here's our projects, and then Carl will say, all right, well let Brian draw this and James can do this and I'll tackle this, and then for the physical side I'll say, all right, here's how we're going to do this. So we assign tasks to the different people, and then we just keep track of everything on a project schedule. To say here's all the tasks, and we have graphs that show here's all the timelines, here's all the costs, here's all the places where we have to pay large sums of money out, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And the fun part, of course, is where you fly out to Warner Brothers and you meet the people, and you know there are, there are parts to it as well. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's a business, right? So the key to the business is cash flow management, mm-hmm. right? So I tell these people all the time, it's really what we make is irrelevant. It's cash flow management, mm-hmm. making sure that your debt ratio to your available cash ratio is correct, yeah. and you're not running out of money, and you're not chasing cash. There's too many companies, they get started, and they just chase money forever. Yeah. And then you never are able to use your creative talents to focus on making great stuff you're just every day like, I need more money, I need more money, I need more money. So we made sure that we are adequately capitalized when we started and we have access to more. And, of course, our sales are great. We made a bunch of money today, our daughter just told me. Um, so we're doing really well. So we have that adequate cash flow where we can do things like, yeah, let's pay $500 to ship these in because we need them for the show. And I don't have to worry about, oh, it's $500 for shipping. Right. I don't want to spend it, but we can. Well, well we're very careful. I mean, yeah. we, we know, with his experience many years in the business, we know how much things cost to make. And we don't make a thing if making it would cost more than we could ever sell it for, right? So we have a practic- basis in practicality. Uh, we try to dream big, but uh, within an envelope of realism. Yeah. So we have, like, for example, we have a P&L calculator that I created many years ago, and then four or five other people have contributed to it. We had a CPA review it. So you plug in a 100 variables, and then at the end it tells you what your net margin and your profit are. And there's projects where we thought, like, this is going to be great. And then we plugged in all the numbers, and we actually lost money. Yeah, so we said, we're going to make more money not making that product. Literally, yeah. so we didn't make it. Yeah. Um, so things could make sense. Say like, oh, we're going to sell that for fifty bucks, and we're going to make a ton of money. But when you put in a hundred line items and it calculates it, yeah. it's pretty brutal because yeah. the cost, cogs, cost of goods sold, is actually only five of those hundred things. Yeah. You got yeah. packaging. You got overhead. You got inland freight. You got how much is the paper that it gets wrapped in? We calculate everything. Yeah. And it, a lot of things don't make it through that acid test. Yeah. So I was going to ask, how many of your pieces are just one-time, one-off replicas versus uh, multiple, you know? Uh, well, nothing we make for mass replicas is one-off. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, the house limited to 2001 because we knew we wanted that to be a limited piece and sell out. Okay. But we learned back at the original MR, a lot of times we would number a piece 
and then we get a thousand more requests for it, and now that money's left on the table. Yeah. So then you have to make the hard decision: Do I come out with a second edition? And then you got to be careful because you don't want to tick off the first people that bought it. So it's always we're always thinking about that: Do we do this as a numbered piece, an open edition? So keep coming back to the boot print, but. You know, we got the moon landing coming up on July 20th. So we didn't want to number that because we don't know. We could sell 100 or we could sell 10,000. We don't have a clue yet. Yeah. So we want to leave that as an open edition to cover our bases in case it sells extremely well. So do you, uh, and, and this might be, a, again, proprietary business thing, but how, how do you do your market research to, de- to determine how many people might buy your business? Well, we think it's cool, right? Yeah. We, <laughs> well, it's like, would we buy it, first right. of all? And then we run it past the crew, like I said, on those Monday phone calls. We're like, hey, here's 10 things that we can make. Does everybody think about it? And there's been some really crazy ideas come up in those Monday calls. And there's things that I thought were going to be great, and everybody was like, <laughs> I don't get it. Why would yeah. you want? So they die in the call. Yeah. So it's it's kind of done by committee. I run it past everybody and see what they think. Yeah. Interesting. All right. That's well. Where do people find Master Replica Group online? Like, yeah, social media, website. We're everywhere. So MasterReplicasGroup.com, obviously. Where we have social media. We got Facebook, Twitter. Um, actually, if you Google Hal Nine Thousand, we're the first hit. Oh yeah. So. Talk about SEO. Yeah. Um, so we're all over the place. And just uh, and people, just so we can, so it's Master com. Okay. Um, that's all the questions I have. You guys have any last words or comments or anything? Visit the website and buy a bunch of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> cool. There's something for every budget. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's, a, that's that important. That wasn't cliche at all. <laughs> but it's important. Okay. Well, right. also, not, not was go to our website and buy stuff. So. Well, we have products from $20 to 10000 So, yes, we have a price, every price budget. Okay, cool. All right, well, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.